thoughts are all against me I'm ready to go Burning it down They ain't noticed Till the temperature rose Bless the energy Then we erupt in a blaze Mama save us I swear the baby's lately crazy Hi, I'm James Anderson Foster And you're listening to Sorceress A weekly podcast of awesome Serialized urban fantasy fiction Written by amazing authors Performed for you by professional narrators And brought to you by SerialAudio.com It's totally binge-worthy Chapter 21 Hello, Allison. When she heard Israel's voice, Allison let out a startled yelp and dropped the computer tablet she'd been holding. It clattered to the floor dully, and she turned toward the voice. Israel and Aaron were facing her from the front window that looked out over Peachtree Center Avenue, 14 stories below. Outside the window, night had its full grip on the city, and the electric lights glowed like multicolored stars. Hi, Doc. Aaron said. Sorry we scared you. That's okay, Allison stammered, kneeling to retrieve her undamaged tablet. But how did you get in here? I guess you haven't talked to Warburton, Aaron said. Allison shook her head. Israel stepped forward and said with an easy smile, It's okay. We've got a lot to tell you, but we didn't want to use the front door because we weren't sure if the DGRI was watching your door or not. Allison nodded. You can pretty much count on that. Still, though, how exactly did you get in here? Before Israel could respond, Aaron disappeared and then reappeared a few feet from Allison. This produced another short, shocked yelp from the doctor. Again, the tablet dropped to the floor. Aaron stepped forward and picked it up, handing it back to her. It's cool, Doc, she said. I figured it was quicker and easier to show you. Allison stared at her with wide, bewildered eyes. You teleported, she said. You freaking teleported. That was what happened that night, wasn't it? We considered invisibility and some kind of insubstantiation, even a dimensional shift to the inner dark, but teleportation? She drifted off as her thoughts went from a verbal format to a mental one. Like I said, we've got a lot to tell you, Israel said. And you, she turned on Israel, her finger pointed at his chest. What happened to you? We went to the meeting place we told you about and you never showed up. Then we heard about some cops picking up a guy who kicked a car door off its hinges. That was you, right? What happened to you? Look, I swear I will tell you everything that's happened. Right now, though, we need to talk to Michelle. We've got a cell phone that we got off a couple of progeny guys that we hope might give us an idea what they've been up to, but it's encrypted. Progeny guys? You ran up against the progeny? Allison turned her head and shouted, Michelle, get over here. A few seconds later, Allison's twin came into the lab and stopped short when she saw the group gathered there. When did they get here? No, scratch that. How did they get here? Michelle asked. Allison looked at Aaron. Aaron shrugged and repeated the process she had gone through with Allison a few moments before. To her credit, Michelle's eyes grew wide, but she didn't make a sound or lose her assessing gaze for even a moment. She stared at Aaron. Organically based teletransportation, she said in awe. But that's not possible because the amount of energy required to do, what, dematerialization, then rematerialization? Space-time manipulation? Some kind of dimensional shift. 
assuming a thousand other variables as positive, not the least of which is ludicrously large power requirements, none of these would be theoretically possible just through force of will alone with no supplemental technology. She looked at her sister in abject confusion. Allison gestured at Aaron. And yet, there she is. Michelle looked from Allison to Aaron. Her face slowly broke into a thrilled grin. You, she said to Aaron, I think I love you. We have a lot of work to do before we get the Nobel. That's going to have to wait, Michelle, Allison said. She looked at Israel and said, We'll start with you. Tell us everything, starting from the last time we saw you. Spare no details. So Israel started talking. He told them about the DGRI team he'd encountered after they had released him. He told them about waking up next to the dead deer and everything else up to that moment. When he got to the fight with the Screed brothers, Allison stopped him. Wait, they were paragons, like you? Well, not exactly like me, but paragons for sure. The big one, Carmine, was strong enough to break bones like they were sticks, and the smaller one, his name was Jordan, was nimble and fast. I'm talking Spider-Man nimble and fast. And this seer, did they say anything else about him? Israel shook his head. No, but I definitely got the impression he was the guy in charge. Allison and Michelle exchanged a worried look. What? Aaron asked. Nothing, Allison said. Let's hear the rest, Israel. Bullshit nothing, Aaron said. That's the kind of shit that made me want to leave before. If we're going to work with you guys, you need to tell us everything. And I will, Aaron, I swear, Allison said. But I need all the facts in front of me first. Otherwise, I might make a flawed conclusion and tell you the wrong thing. Please, just bear with me. Aaron glanced at Israel, and he nodded. She settled herself onto a stool while Israel finished his story. When he was done, they all looked at her. Your turn, Israel said. Aaron and Israel had already decided that no one needed to know about any of the violence that Aaron had been through since leaving Silver Sky. Instead, she told them a story about appearing in the desert and bouncing around while she explored her abilities. The bruises on her face were attributed to a close encounter with a large boulder. It was a television in a diner that had alerted her to Israel's problems and what had prompted her to puzzle out how to get back to Atlanta. The sisters seemed to believe the story without reservation. While Allison and Michelle discussed the details of the stories and the possible scientific reasons for much of it, Aaron walked over and stood next to Israel. A deer? she asked in hushed tones. You really ate a whole deer? Raw? He grimaced. I wasn't myself. I don't remember any of it. Yeah, but still, man, you took down Bambi barehanded and chowed down on him. That's pretty hardcore, Izzy. Shut up, Israel said. Aaron didn't miss the smile playing at the corners of his mouth, though. Allison and Michelle turned to them. Okay, Allison said. First things first. Where's this phone? Aaron handed it over to Michelle, who took it and headed back to her own lab without a word. When she was gone, Allison said, If that thing can be cracked, she'll do it. Now, I want to talk to Israel some more, and then we need to bring Olivia up to speed. How's that going to work? Israel said. The DGRI has got to be watching her. Allison nodded. I'm sure every cell phone signal and hardline communication device in that place is being monitored. Silver Sky itself, though, should be relatively safe, since I know there's no way Olivia would knowingly allow them to put men inside. 
That said, I also know there is at least one DGRI agent embedded in Silver Sky because that's how they found out about you in the first place, Israel. We need to get you guys directly into Olivia's office without alerting any of the staff. They both looked at Aaron. She smiled and said, I got that. Good, Allison said. Michelle and I can just drive up and go in the old-fashioned way like nothing has changed. First, though, I want to hear more about what you've gone through, Israel. He shrugged. I told you pretty much everything that happened. That's not what I mean. I want to know what kind of changes your body has been going through, what kind of things you've felt, what can you do that you couldn't before, things like that. So Israel started talking again. He talked about sprinting with no fatigue and jumping higher than should be possible. He told her about the damage his body had taken without any pain. He described the way he could see in the dark and how his senses seemed more sensitive than they had ever been before. He told her how sunlight hurt his eyes. Mostly, though, he told her about the hunger and the way it gnawed at his body and mind when he exerted himself too much. When he was done, Aaron nodded thoughtfully. I was right. Undead Captain America. Israel gave her a look that could have frozen falling rain. She gave him a sweet smile as a reply. You're not dead, Allison said. Okay, well, that's not completely accurate. By most medical standards, you are. No pulse, no respirations. Wait, Aaron said. How do you talk? You need to breathe for that, right? I do breathe, Israel said. I just don't think I need to. Muscle memory, Allison said. Your diaphragm spent three decades moving air in and out of your lungs, so it's just running on autopilot now. You're right, though. You don't need to. Running like you did without getting out of breath pretty much proves that. Okay, so not breathing. Heart not beating equals dead, right? Israel asked. Allison shook her head. Not totally, because somehow your mind is still functioning. To any layman, sure, you're dead. Scientific death, though, is brain death. Your brain seems fine. In every report of necrophage infestation that I've read, the subjects were either mentally incapacitated to the point of becoming mindless, instinct-driven eating machines, or they possessed some higher cognitive function, but never really more than, say, a very clever jungle cat. Either way, they were predators solely focused on feeding this hunger you talked about. In you, though, the hunger seems to be kept in check by a steady supply of animal proteins. If you are deprived of those, then the instinctual nature takes over. Poor Bambi, Aaron said. This time it was Allison who gave her the cold look. Aaron held the doctor's stare for a second and then held up her hands in surrender. She leaned against a lab table and made a zipping motion across her mouth. That's what everyone's afraid of, Allison continued. If you lose control and kill or infect other people, then they will rise without your cognitive abilities and go on a killing spree and then more rise and so on and so on. Classic zombie apocalypse. What about the deer? It wasn't moving or anything. Shouldn't it have been infected? Was it decapitated? Israel thought back and then nodded. That's something the movies got correct. Whatever the nature of necrophage DNA, it relies heavily on neurological tissue. Do enough damage to the brain and the spine and the subject stops functioning, even though the tissues are still a viable infection vector. We'll definitely need to get a sentry team to sweep the forest for those remains regardless. Israel remembered Carmine standing over him with a long piece of metal poised to shatter his skull. So they could have killed... 
destroyed me, he said. No, they could have killed you. Look, Israel, this is the takeaway from this. You're not dead. You are an aware and reasoning creature that requires sustenance to continue existing. It's just that you are a form of life that we don't completely or even partially understand. To my knowledge, you are one of a kind, but not human. Allison shook her head. No, not anymore. Neither of you are. You are a human-based life form, I suppose, if that helps. It's like if you were to equate human DNA to a house, then your human DNA is merely the foundation on which the rest of you is built, while it's everything to someone like me or Michelle. You, Israel, you're going to have to be very, very careful. I will find a way to suppress the infectious nature of your necrophagic DNA, but it will take a lot of time. Until then, you need to avoid crowds or any place else where you might inadvertently leave a sample behind. Israel looked into the doctor's soft brown eyes. A surge of emotion that had been building in him rose up, but he pushed it back down. It was a useless feeling. So, no dating then, he said with a smile. He expected her to smile back, but a sad shadow crossed her face. Sharing a meal with a friend isn't out of the question, she said. Aaron said, Wow, I would tell you two to get a room, but that's probably not the best idea, all things considered. Allison turned and glared at her. Hey, don't get mad at me. It's the undead babe magnet who brought it up. I'm just looking out for you. Allison's gaze softened a bit. She's very direct, isn't she? She is, Israel said. I'm just glad she didn't call me an effing undead babe magnet. Fucking, Israel. The word is fucking. Israel nodded and gestured toward Aaron. And there you have it. All right, Aaron said. Now that the science stuff and the twilight moment is out of the way, let's get back to my question from earlier. Which was, why you and your sister were looking at each other like the world might be ending when we told you the asshats in the parking lot were paragons? What's the big deal about that? Oh, that. Well, the bottom line is that we were under the impression that you and Israel were the only two paragons currently active. Finding out that there are two, potentially three, working for the progeny is simultaneously alarming and somewhat amazing. Paragons are extremely rare, like one every few centuries rare. Well, then why aren't they in the history books? Why haven't we heard of these people? There are a few in history. In the modern era, though, they were subject to the same laws as any other awakened, so the Council of the Vale kept them and their activities out of public light. Needless to say, having five of you active at once is historically significant. Historically? That sounds... Hey, guys, Michelle said, coming into the room, a tablet computer in her hand. I think we hit a gold mine here. That was quick, Allison said. Michelle nodded. Yeah, whoever owned this phone needs a primer on electronic security. The password was just a stream of sixes and nines, which is both stupid easy to break and really immature. Anything good on it? Israel asked. Michelle smiled. Oh, yes, this guy didn't bother deleting anything. The reason it went so fast is that I didn't have to dig through it looking for traces of erased data. There are months of texts and call logs here. I've already bypassed the copy protection software and made a duplicate of the data. I scrubbed that for Trojans and the like, then uploaded it to Pythia for collection and analysis. Pi what? Aaron asked. Pythia, Aaron responded.
It's a data analysis program that I named after the Oracle of Delphi. It uses a series of information-gathering matrices to collect and collate input data against unknown behavior patterns, known goals, current newsworthy situations, and past events to... Shell? Allison said, holding up her hand. Let me. She looked at Aaron and said, We put information into Pythia, and it compares it to all the information that Sentry has collected and basically spits out possible objectives of whoever the subject of our inquiry is. In this case, that's the progeny. So it can tell you where they will be and what they will be doing, Aaron said. Not exactly. More like where they'll most likely be and what they might be up to. It's not infallible by any means, but it has given us more leads than not. It's how we found the Oceanside place. Not infallible yet, Michelle said. I'll be damned, Israel said. What did Pythia find? Allison asked Michelle. It's still running. There's a lot of data to compare. While it started, though, I took about a dozen texts at random that all contained names and addresses. I manually ran those, and each of them matches one of the missing persons Sentry has been looking into. Well, Jordan told me they snatched me, so that confirms that, I guess, Israel said. Yeah, well, that's the thing. There are hundreds of names in this phone, guys. Hundreds. That's way more than we have in our databases. They're up to something on a big scale. A series of beeping tones sounded from Michelle's tablet. Israel thought he recognized it from one of the robots in the Star Wars films. Michelle picked it up and said, Pythia's finished. She ignored them and started reading the display in silence. After a minute of this, Allison asked, Shell, you aren't sharing. Michelle looked up at them. Her eyes, while still controlled and calculating, were wide with fear. We need to get this to Olivia, she said with a slight waver in her voice. We need to do that right now. Chapter 22 Aaron tried to convince them to just let her teleport everyone to Olivia's office, but the idea was rejected based on the fact that they couldn't be sure who was in the office with the head of the sentry group, plus the fact that the idea seemed to terrify Allison. So they all agreed that Allison and Michelle would go by vehicle, while Aaron and Israel took the less conventional route. Once on the grounds, Allison would signal from the window in Olivia's office that it was clear for them to make their entrance. Plans made, Aaron took Israel and moved them to an adjoining rooftop. He looked around in confusion when they materialized. Again with the roof, he said. I thought we were going to Silver Sky. Here's the thing, Aaron said. I can't just go anywhere I want. Like, if you were to ask me to pop us over to the middle of Times Square, I couldn't do that because... I've never been to New York. If I can't see where I want to go, then I have to have some memory of the place, some feeling of it. That's the biggest reason I keep taking us to rooftops, because I can see more from up high and because I'm a lot less likely to make some Joe Sixpack crap himself when I appear out of nowhere. Okay, that makes sense, I guess. So, Silver Sky? The only place that I have an emotional memory of there is Olivia's office from the night we... She paused to look for the right word. I'd go with changed, Israel said. Yeah, changed, the night we changed. Israel nodded. And the whole point of all this is to not suddenly appear in her office. Right, so help me think of another spot that's close to but not in the house. Israel thought it over. 
What about that spot where you offered to, you know? Aaron looked at him and smiled. Oh, that's cute. You think turning me down was emotionally traumatic for me? Sorry, Playa, but you're not all that. Besides, that's probably too close to the house. Israel thought it over for a minute and then bounced the heel of his hand off his forehead. That's people. All those people grieving, Stone's little speech, the looks we kept getting. Surely there's something there you can latch onto. Aaron nodded. I should have thought of that. It's not that far from the mansion. We could go overland until we get where we need to be to see Allison at the window. Okay, give me a second. She closed her eyes and her brow furrowed as she concentrated. After a time, she held out her hand to Israel without speaking. He took it, and they vanished. They reappeared not only in the Sentry Group Memorial Building, but right in front of the alcove where Matthew Tucker's ashes were interred. The building was dark and cool. Moonlight glowed through skylights and cast shadows that stretched in varying angles. Tiny, gas-fueled flames marked each memorial and made the shadows dance as they flickered. The silence was absolute until Israel broke it. Nice, he said, right on target. Aaron's only reply was a quick nod. She stared up at the silver plaque that marked Matt's memorial. Herein lies Matthew James Tucker. He walked through darkness so others would not have to. Aaron reached out and touched it lightly. He didn't even know us, but he died saving us, she said. Israel studied the plaque as well. Yeah, that was the life he chose, protecting people from, hell, I'm not entirely sure what even now. Definitely the progeny and guys like the Screeds. Who knows what else? Like I said before, we're playing in the deep end of the grown-up pool. I never knew anyone who would choose something like that, she said. Not in the real world. I thought guys like him only existed in the movies. Israel nodded. I get that, he said. Thing is, there's a whole lot more good people than bad, I think. You just didn't get a chance to see any of them. Until I met you, Aaron said. Thanks for not leaving me behind back in Oceanside. I mean that. Israel just nodded. The silence closed over them again for a moment. The thing that amazes me, he said, is that you thought people like that only existed in movies, yet you were one of them the whole time. Aaron gave him a sarcastic laugh. No, Izzy, I was not. I told you. You told me about shit that was done to you, Aaron. Choices that were made for you. You told me about a lifetime of that. The minute you got the power to make your own choices, though, what did you do? You saved a bunch of kids from some very, very bad people. Among other things, she whispered with a choked sob. Israel said nothing for a time. Then, I didn't know your brother. From what you've told me, I'm glad for that. I've gotten to know you, though, and if I had to choose one of you to be in the world, I'd pick you every single time. The choices are all yours now, and you've chosen to be here, doing this. He reached up and put his fingers next to hers on the plaque. In my book, that makes you a whole lot like this guy. Israel watched as a single tear broke free and rolled down her cheek. She took her hand off the plaque and turned her back to him. When she turned back, she said, Enough of this soap opera shit. Let's go see Warburton. Israel nodded, and they walked to the door.
It took a few minutes to get their bearings, but it wasn't long before they were kneeling in the grass at the base of a small hill that overlooked the Silver Sky Mansion. From here, the true enormity of the structure struck Israel. Even when he'd been staying there, he had never truly appreciated the sheer size of the place. The main house reminded him of a starburst design cut in half. Four wings, too short and too longer, radiated out from a central hall that he knew from experience was easily fifty feet tall. The two longer arms ended in smaller wings that crossed the larger at a right angle. At the end of each of these was a large parking area with half a dozen or so vehicles in each. The mansion was lit up by a score of exterior flood and walkway lights. Lights glowed from within all over the house, and Israel could see several guards patrolling the grounds. Are you sure you know which window? he asked. Yeah, it's that one. Aaron said with a quick gesture toward the house and its hundred or so windows. Thank you, that helps loads. Relax, Izzy, she said. I spent a couple of hours in that office this morning looking out that window. I've got this. Another few minutes passed when Aaron suddenly stood up and said, There it is. Israel stood up as well and said, Where? I didn't... He felt Aaron grab his arm. See it? He finished suddenly aware that Olivia Warburton was facing him from behind her desk. Stone was next to her, a kind of cautious smile on his bearded face. Michelle and Allison stood next to the window that Aaron had been watching and were pulling the heavy drapes closed. Israel noticed that the furniture seemed to have been moved away from the center of the room, in anticipation of their arrival, he supposed, but then saw a large dinner cart filled with covered silver trays sitting in the spot he remembered one of the chairs being. Welcome back, Mr. Trent, Warburton said. You've had us a bit worried. Yeah, I picked up on that, the whole terrorist thing and all. Not our doing, mate, Stone said. I know, Israel said, but I was hoping there was something you might be able to do about it. I'm already working on it, Warburton said. I've had a couple of heated discussions with the DGRI men responsible for that decision, and I'm trying to pull a few strings elsewhere to get your name cleared. I appreciate that, Israel said. Warburton nodded in acknowledgement. In the meantime, after talking with Allison, I took the liberty of arranging to have dinner in my office with some of my staff. It's a rather large sirloin roast, far more than the four of us could have eaten. I was thinking you might join us. Israel smiled. Well, Mrs. Warburton, I guess that means that I like the way you think. She returned the smile for a brief moment and then gestured toward the tray for Israel to help himself. No one else moved to join him, so Aaron walked over and grabbed a small plate as he pulled the cover from the roast. A delicious aroma washed over them, and Israel looked at Aaron with a question in his eyes. What? she said. I get hungry, too. Get yours first, Israel said. I don't want you to accidentally use the same utensils as me or something. Michelle, Warburton said, why don't you give us your findings while Israel and Aaron have their dinner? Right, Michelle said. Mr. Stone, are we secure? Stone nodded. Michelle walked over to Warburton's desk and picked up a tablet computer. She tapped it a few times and the wall monitor beside Warburton's desk lit up. A series of photos appeared in a stack in the middle of the screen and then one by one moved from the stack until they were arranged in a neat grid. There were a total of 15 and each one had a name and a date across the bottom of the image. These are the random samplings I took while Pythia was running, Michelle said. 
Each of them is one of the progeny abductees that we know about. This data was recovered from a cell phone that Israel was kind enough to bring us after encountering said agent in the city. Israel, in the interest of clarity, would you mind telling Olivia and Mr. Stone everything you told Allison and me about that encounter, just everything after you got back into Atlanta? Israel had settled into a chair next to a glass coffee table and repeated the story between bites of perfectly prepared roast. When he was done, he looked up at his audience and wiped his mouth with the linen napkin. Warburton's face was its usual mask of objectivity. Stone, however, wore an expression of concentration that Israel could only call stressed. Allison and Michelle sat quietly waiting while Aaron poured iced tea into a crystal glass and plucked another roll from a tray next to the roast. So, Olivia said, if I understand this correctly, there are now four, potentially five, known paragons walking the world. Five. She said the last word as though she were a judge passing sentence. I think five is the safest bet, Michelle said. The Screed brothers called their boss the Seer. I don't think that the title would apply unless there was some sort of precognitive or extrasensory power at play. Couple that with the fact that the only two abductees we've managed to rescue turned out to be paragons, and it starts to put a frightening spin on things. How so? Olivia asked. Well, we know that there are people with the potential to awaken all around us. Among those, a, a very small percentage, we think, some have the potential to awaken as paragons. When you consider a current U.S. population of over 320 million, though, that's still a hell of a lot of people who could wake up with superpowers one day. Please don't use that word, Israel said. This isn't a comic book. No, it's not, Israel, but what would you suggest I call it? I don't think abilities quite covers the scope of what Aaron can do, do you? We can argue the correct vernacular some other time, Warburton said. Continue, Michelle. Michelle turned to her. According to the Council of the Vale data that Pythia has, there has not been a single recorded Paragon awakening globally since the Revolutionary War, yet we just stumbled across two in a dark basement. Why aren't there more? Israel asked. If so many people have the potential, why aren't they everywhere? What's keeping them so rare? Exposure, Allison said. Do you remember us talking about the inner dark and all the different kinds of energies and things that exist there? These are the energies that the average person has to be exposed to in order to awaken. And they aren't things you just stumble across. They aren't like mist or fog or something. You can't just stroll into them. But there's enough that you guys need a secret society, a government agency, and Mrs. Warburton's private army to keep it a secret? That doesn't track for me. That's because you are assuming all the current awakened are newly so, Warburton said. They aren't. The vast majority of the people who live behind the veil are second, third, fourth generation. Most of the ones I know were born that way. Israel nodded. Okay, so an awakened mom and dad can make an awakened baby? Genetics at its most basic, Allison said. Which is not what we are faced with, Michelle said. There was an urgent edge to her voice that Israel had never heard before. What we are facing is potentially catastrophic. The room fell silent as they returned their attention to her. She stood up and pointed at the screen. Five of the people on that list were among the dead we pulled from the Oceanside facility. One of the five was the person you guys were lucky enough to see with those things coming out of her chest. 
We managed to collect some post-mortem tissue samples before the site was incinerated, and each one of them shows the same unknown protein markers that we got from Aaron's and Israel's blood samples. Pythia posits, and I agree, that each one of those people was a paragon potential. Assuming that, it begs the question of whether or not the other 200 or so people we found in this phone share that distinction. Not possible, Stone said. How could the progeny possibly know whether or not someone was a potential? Because they have a seer, Israel said. He looked at Michelle. Right? You think this guy somehow picks out people like me and Aaron, then he sends his evil minions to collect them? Exactly, Michelle said. To what end, though? What could any of this possibly accomplish? Michelle smiled and nodded toward Aaron. I think she's answered that for us. Aaron said, me? What did I do? Remember back at my lab when you showed me your power for the first time? Remember how I said the energy requirements were ridiculously high for such a thing? Yeah, so? It's been a long-held theory that any kind of awakened who manifests an unusual ability, even a small one, is a biological conduit to the inner dark. The theory is that they can tap into energies from that realm and utilize them in whatever ways dictated by their specific genetics. In your case, teleportation at will. I don't get it. If someone with a small power is a conduit for that small amount of energy, then, in theory, a paragon would be a much, much larger conduit since the power requirements for your kind of abilities would be much higher. The theory also states that, under the proper circumstances, that conduit could be maintained. Warburton's eyes widened in realization. Oh, my God, she whispered. Michelle looked at her. Exactly. That's why they need so many. Exactly what? Israel asked. Energy isn't the only thing in the inner dark, Warburton said. It's inhabited by things we call dwellers. They are alien and hostile and wholly destructive to any living thing that they come in contact with. To the progeny, though, they're gods. The progeny exists to open the way for them to enter this world. They believe that by doing so they will be rewarded with whatever they desire. Kings in the New World Order or something of the like. Wait, Aaron said. The squidheads? That's what those were? Got it in one, Stone said. The dweller was actually the black things that had taken up residence in the host's head. We call them squidlings, but the science types have a different name for them. Transdimensional parasitic salp, Allison said. Yes, that, Stone said. They come through a breach and attach themselves to the first human they encounter, and Bob's your uncle, you've got yourself a squid head. Okay, Aaron said, but those things went down pretty easy. How could the progeny worship something that squishy? That's not the entity they worship. The salp are quite literally the fleas from its hide, Warburton said. Aaron opened her mouth to speak, but then closed it again as that information worked its way into her thoughts. Opening a breach point, Michelle said, is no small thing. It requires that inner dark energy be harnessed and concentrated on a specific point. The more energy you pour into that point, the bigger the breach. Right, Israel said, like that thing we saw in Oceanside. Michelle shook her head. Not exactly. If what we're theorizing is correct, then they have well upwards of a hundred potentials. What you saw in Oceanside was the result of eleven sacrifices. 
that created a paper cut on the skin of reality. As many as they have now would be more like an autopsy incision. Israel nodded. Okay, so this seer person identifies potential paragons, the screeds round them up, and then they use the energy from these biological conduits to open a breach so that these inner dark things they worship can come through. Two things. Why all the ritual around the killings? Why not just get them all in a room and gas them or something? Also, for this to work, they have to have that first awakened paragon, that first tiny bit of energy to get the breach started. If awakenings are so rare, where does that come from? Identifying a potential is useless if you can't wake them up. For that matter, how did the progeny end up with three paragons working for them at the same time? As far as the ritual goes, Warburton said, the progeny of the inner dark is first and foremost a religious cult. All religions have rituals that are not strictly necessary to the process at hand, but they are grandiose and stir emotions in the hearts of the adherents. Make someone feel something and they will tend to follow you no matter how ludicrous your claims. Michelle, do you have any ideas on Israel's second question? Michelle shook her head. Not one. Aaron spoke up. So is that why everyone is so freaked out about there being five of us? Because we could maybe open one of these breach things? Not exactly, Warburton said. It's just that that hasn't happened in a very, very long time. How long? Aaron asked. Three thousand years, give or take, Allison said. The last time we know for certain there was a collected group of paragons was Romulus and Remus in ancient Rome. Her eyes met Israel's and found a growing understanding there. You don't mean what I think you mean, do you? He said. Allison nodded. It started with the Greeks, really. We think most of the paragons of that time came into being a few centuries after the Greek Dark Ages. Why they proliferated so readily then is a mystery, but there are secret council records that provide near-concrete evidence that Hercules, Zeus, Hera, Dionysus, Artemis, and Ares were all very real people. It's a common belief among those of us with access to those records that there were others, but we lack solid evidence to state it as fact. You're saying that Greek mythology is real? No, Warburton cut in. Not the way you mean. Do not make the mistake of confusing the stories with the realities. The same records that confirm their existence tell of the cults that were built around them. There was no veil then, so the paragons of that time felt no need to hide their power. The people who witnessed the things these paragons could do needed an explanation for what they were seeing. Lacking any real evidence or the means to gain it, they came up with fictions that would seem to fit what they witnessed and, more importantly, ease their fear. Thus was born the Greek pantheon. With time, the cults became religions, and the religions became mythologies, and the stories have endured regardless of fact or truth. Wait, does that mean modern religion? What it means, Allison said, is that whenever a group of paragons or even a single paragon exists unfettered in the world, history is irrevocably altered. Things change and are never the same again. The room was silent for a while before Aaron said, Wow, no pressure there. Israel shook his head in disbelief. So what do we do now? He asked. I managed to, Michelle started to say, and then her phone chirped. She fished it from her pocket and checked the screen. She looked at Warburton and said, It's John. 
He says he needs to talk to you urgently, something about the DGRI. He wants to join us. Of course. Warburton tapped a couple keys on her smartphone, and there was a loud click from the office door as the locks disengaged. The sound sent a tingle down Israel's spine. Wait, he said, are you sure? As soon as the doors cracked open, two fist-sized canisters rolled into the room and exploded. There was a violent flash of light and an explosion of sound unlike anything Israel had ever experienced. It vibrated through him like a jackhammer in his chest. The light blinded him thoroughly, and he did an instinctive and useless drop onto the floor in an attempt to avoid it. Though blinded, he was not deafened and clearly heard the stomp of heavy boots as men piled into the room and shouted, Clear! Then, through the blinding white in his eyes, Israel heard John Brindley say, Contact Agent Nomura. Tell him we have secured Trent with Sims as a bonus. I repeat, Romero and Runaway are in federal custody. Thanks for listening this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sorceress as much as we enjoy bringing it to you. Remember to come back next week or subscribe at SerialAudio.com so you never miss a new episode. You can learn more about this podcast and other serialized fiction shows by visiting our website at SerialAudio.com. That's all one word, SerialAudio.com, where you can subscribe to this and our other shows via RSS, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast players. While you're at it, if you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends. Even better, if you have a few spare seconds, leave a review on iTunes. To help support this show, sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash serial audio. You'll get early access to episodes ad-free and special bonuses like behind-the-scenes author and narrator interviews. Thank you again from all of us at SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy. Cause we warriors. Cause we warriors. Let's go.